This episode is brought to you by Dunnings, your local distributor of quality fuels and lubricants throughout Western Australia. Dunnings Fuel operate their fleet of trucks 24 hours a day, 7 days a week and on a daily basis have trucks operating in the whole state. Dunnings keeps the whole state running. Find out more at dunningsfuel.com.au Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. On today's episode, Steph travels to the centre of South Australia, to Billicolina Station, where she talks to station owner and Bronco brander Cole Greenfield about mentors, mining and missile testing. Alright Cole, let's start off the way we do every episode. What are you watching, reading or listening to? Don't watch a lot of TV, but um, a bit of a fan of Fisk on the ABC at the moment. Ooh, what's that about? Um, Kitty Flanagan, so one oh, of Australia's okay. leading lady comedians. Um, yeah, in a lawyer office and and a bit of a satire. What goes on in the legal world? What about reading or listening? Uh, well, we're fairly limited here. We got the ABC. We got the ABC to listen to. <laughs> so yeah, I can tell you every presenter and every time slot all day, every day. And reading is yeah, it's a bit of a mixture of the Stock Journal, which is our local rural paper, I suppose. So I just finished a book from Gary Parker called Consolation, which wasn't a bad read. It's a bit of a murder mystery. Is that something you like to read, like something – you, do you read a lot of murder mysteries? I, I read a lot of whatever. doesn't worry me. Okay, cool. But just something – like just – Just to just to get my – yeah, to forget about – Cows. I suppose and cows and, and life for – not life, but, um, yeah, making decisions. All you got to do is think about turning the page. Yeah, that's the greatest thing about books. It's kind of like a mini escape into that's right. another world. Okay, so – we are recording from Billa Kalina Station, which is in South Australia. Don't know a lot about South Australia. So technically, like, where are we? So we're pretty much in the middle of South Australia here. If you draw a line diagonally across, we're, we're, we're in the middle. So between Coober the Opal Mining Town, and Port Augusta. Okay. And what kind of country, like, how would you describe the landscape out here? So generally quite flat. So we've got stony, stony open plains, which are called gibbers, and then sand dunes and some swamps and lakes, which have water in them very occasionally. Okay. And so, yeah, gibber, gibber flats is a new term to me, but um, if you actually Google it, everyone, you can, it'll come up with a picture. So it's kind of, it's kind of like gravel, but not loose gravel, but bigger, but just really like all kind of not stuck together, but kind of like quite firm and compacted, but. 
Yeah, and they've been and they've been um, polished, if you will, over time. So they're often quite smooth and shiny um, from a lot of weathering. They're, it's a very old landscape. So basically, you wouldn't want to go out mustering barefoot. No, no, no not no. the most comfortable thing. And what um, what kind of rainfall are we looking at down this way? One hundred and forty five mils down here. That's our average for the last eighty years. Okay, so for people listening, obviously, so. Rainfall varies everywhere within Australia. With our subtropical and tropical regions, you know, it's quite common to get anywhere from 500 to, you know, 900, more than that. Some people get, I don't know, don't some people get yeah. like 1,200? Yeah, they do. Okay, so you're getting, sorry, what was that? 100 and- 145, 143 or something. Yeah. yeah. One millimetre means a lot down here. So. Yeah, so it's not much at all. It's, I mean, even um, sometimes you'll hear about like a storm and they'll be in one of the, you know, like Brisbane or Perth or somewhere and they'll get more rain in like three days and you're- Yeah, that's right. Than what and you get in a year. To put it in some context, uh, three years ago we had 17 mils for the whole year. That is just- So it's only just in double figures, which is, yeah- Dismal, yeah. We're actually hoping that it didn't. we didn't get any more when we were sort of almost at the end of the year just to see if we could get the lowest ever. Oh, <laughs> there's got to be some silver lining. Yeah, well, that's right. So um, when people usually have such little rainfall, that's what I guess what we see in some dryland farming areas where people were like, you know, doing some cropping stuff. But even then sometimes people, it might be enough for a crop or they might use some irrigation. But obviously irrigation isn't a isn't an option out here and also you're not really growing a crop so you literally just yeah so we just have big areas and not many animals on it so they've got lots of room to lots of room to try and get a feed and and um and in most most um years it's not just get a feed they they survive and prosper yeah, they were absolutely looking fantastic as we were driving around the place today how big of a place are we talking uh, so, yeah, our home place here is about 5,000 square kilometres and then we've got a couple other properties that are about 2,000 each. Okay, so uh, can you put that into hectares and acres for me? Uh, hectares, it's so uh, all up it's about 900,000 hectares and uh, a bit over 2 million acres, I think. Yeah, okay, because is it 2.5? Four one yeah acres to the hectare something like that yeah okay so basically it's a lot it's a it's a big I'm oh I'm sure people can Google the equivalent but it's it's a lot of country um and so like you're saying because of the country type the cattle are more you have a a, a lower what we call a stocking rate so you you don't have as many in the same space as you would in other areas of the country. That's right, and so whether it's cattle or sheep, you might um, you might drive for an for an hour and not see a single animal, and then you might come around a corner and there's two hundred on a green swamp that that a creek ran into and grew some really good feed. So while they're not evenly spread, um, yeah, you've still got to make allowances. And your family has actually had this lease, Billical Inner, since 1938. So if we hold out a few more years, we're going to have a big like turn of the century party. I, I'm going to come back for that in 2038. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully um, we're all still around. Yeah, that's It's not that right. far away. <laughs> no, well, it's surprisingly soon, really. Um, but yeah, my great-grandmother bought the lease. They had other properties that they'd had for a sort of 30-odd years before that. Um a bit further south that they developed and, and yeah, this was an abandoned block and pretty much a square on a map and, and yeah, she sent one of her younger sons up to to um, take it on. What was her name? 
Uh, her name was Edith Greenfield. Okay, so Edith Greenfield is like my current. Oh, today's Wednesday. So she's my woman crush Wednesday. <laughs> oh my goodness. So this is 1938. And I don't want to make it, you know, normally if this were today, day and age, like you try not to make a big deal about when a woman does something, but 1938 and a woman is buying, purchasing a pastoral lease. I don't think women were even legally considered farmers until like the nineties or something. So what about us buying a station? And then obviously, like you said, she sent a son up to run it, but she's obviously the matriarch that's. Oh yes, yeah, certainly. The show. Yeah, she was. She had a she had a tribe of kids down there at uh, Purple Downs, which is a, a property south of here, and um, and yeah. So um, I think they um, drew straws for a while, and then the youngest one got sent because none of the others wanted to come here. So <laughs> him and his his um, newlywed wife had to had to come up here and make a start. So. <laughs> what an impression to make! Like to be like, oh, I don't think my mother in law likes me. She sent me all the way out here. <laughs> Yeah, I think there was rabbits in the kitchen floor, and it was it was pretty ordinary what they rocked up to. Yeah, and so, so you said it was abandoned before that. So pretty much everything that's on here, like all the infrastructure, the houses, the buildings, everything is in your family or from your family. Yeah, pretty much there was there was one well at the homestead that collapsed soon after, and one not far away that did the same. And and yeah, so so pretty much they've had to build build everything. Do you ever think, I know with some other places, obviously like a lot of people haven't had their cut, like haven't had a piece of land in their family for that long. It's not that common, but often then you can be like, oh, what were these people thinking when they built these yards or putting that fence there or, you know, what have they done? But you can't, if you want to say anything like that, you're actually just <laughs> like, that's your granddad or your dad or someone else. Oh, yeah. I mean, he probably looks down and, and says, thinks, what the hell am I doing some days too, yeah. doing, doing the way I do it. But, um, but yeah, time moves on. and, and um, But, yeah, you look at – you do look at um, like sometimes you have to pull pull down something that they built then, and and you think what tools they had to build it with, and how hard it was, and yeah, it's it certainly makes you think about how much um, well not easier, but yeah, how how different things are now. Oh, just to think, you know, I mean, how hot would it get here in summer? Oh, like it, yeah, it's hot. Like we've we've had that heat wave last summer where there was not sure how many days over forty five, but it's. Yeah, it it gets like Central Australia, it gets hot. Yeah, and yep. just and so you I mean these are the days with no aircon. The okay, something I've learned about South Australia, and I don't want to, I don't want tourism South Australia to come at me after this, but like, <laughs> my goodness, the flies. So I just imagine back in the day, not only is everything harder, but you've got the heat and the flies. Got heat, you've got flies in a good season generally, but yeah, and um and isolation, and yeah, there's a lot of reasons not to come here. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but so many still. So speaking of the isolation, we always talk about how cattle stations are quite isolated, but Billa is actually very isolated for a very special reason. And it, and it's not your typical isolation that, oh, you know, it takes us eight hours to get to town or to go to the grocery store and whatnot. You actually don't even have like, my understanding is like main roads, you know, usually you've got some kind of people who either got access to a highway or they've got a road and usually there's you know, some kind of tourist or some kind of traffic passing through, but there really isn't anything on Billa Kalina um, because you're in a very special location. Yeah, so we are. We're, we are. It's pretty quiet here. Yep, we don't need to, don't need a very fierce guard dog to um, to look after the show here. But yeah, um, we're in the Woomera prohibited area, so it's a fairly unique part of Australia where they do weapons testing and do have very strong federal powers to exclude people out of their area. <laughs> 
So what is Woomera, is there like an actual base? Is that like an army base or something? Or is it just like a kind of like a zone that they just come in and out of to do these tests? Yeah, so it's a bit of both. They've got a They've got a few different zones depending on how important the test is, and it's mostly Air Force that are doing it, based based just out of Woomera itself. Yeah, you can tell how much I know about South Australia. So I'm like, yeah, Woomera, I know where that is. And Woomera is, yeah, it's not a city. It's a town of a couple of hundred people, but it attracts a lot of federal um, defence money. Oh, actually, is there, I think there's, is there a Wimmera in like uh, Victoria? Yeah, in the Okay, Mallee. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So we're not talking Wimmera, we're talking Woomera. Woomera. So, because obviously this is all pastoral country. Is it is it all pastoral country out here or is there some freehold land? Is there some reservation? Is there, I don't know, different – I mean, I know you can get different types of leases. Like, is does Woomera have its own little bit or is it kind of just overlapping a bunch of different cattle stations or sheep yeah, stations? Yeah, so it's got a small area that it's that it's only exclusive area, but it doesn't really do much testing in that. That's more of where their all their infrastructure is, is basically housed, their telescopes and, and whatnot in their launch areas. But the rest of it is all is all done on pastoral leases. There's a there's a few conservation areas, but by far and away, um, pastoral leases is, is their main go. So how does that work? Obviously, you're not just like mustering one day and then like a missile just comes and lands in front of your mob, or or you don't go out to check your cattle and you find that they've been exploded into a million pieces because something that's gone <laughs> up has come down and hit them. Well, that's almost happened. Dad was track riding some cattle one day and, and went back following his tracks the next day and there was a missile right between his Toyota tracks. Oh, really? No way. Stuck in the ground. And What, um, what decade do you reckon that was in? Uh, that was in the 60s. Wow, so maybe they weren't up as, um, on very, their communication. Not very good communication then <laughs> no. and he probably ignored it. Um, and and when he relayed where the rocket was, it was yeah miles and miles, like hundred k's off course. So. Oh shit! <laughs> so yeah, it didn't go where it was meant to, which was quite Ooh. quite normal back then. That's why it was a testing range, I suppose. Yeah. So so how does it work in with? I know it goes over uh, a lot of your country. It goes over a little. I think there's a little patch at Anna Creek. It must probably go over a few other stations. How does that affect your day to day operation of a business and? You know, the one thing people often love about living so remote is that you can go anywhere, do anything you want. You know, there's a lot of autonomy, but like you said, there's a lot of federal powers over this over this mm. space. So yeah, that and they're serious too. They don't muck around when they come along and land a helicopter and point a machine gun at you and say you're not allowed to be here. You take notice. So has that happened? It has happened to one of our neighbours who who just wandered casually into a very serious um, <laughs> um, exercise one day. Oh no. But um, but yeah, generally you get a lot of notice. But it it does affect you. Like there's exercises that go for weeks, and and you've got to evacuate every single day. And and yeah, it gets it gets pretty trying trying to work around it sometimes. So when you say evacuate, where are you evacuating to? Like, do you have to exit the entire station? Sometimes, yep. So it depends how big the exercise is. But we're lucky. We're sort of one of the one of the more northern places on the edge. But some properties right in the middle. Yeah, they they get impacted heavily, so they have to often leave their homestead um, for twenty four hours or so, and come back, feed the chooks and dogs, and go again. That's actually, I, it's it's cool to be, you know. I mean, it's, it's experience not many people would get to have, but also, like you know, and to to know it's around and stuff. But also, what a pain in the butt! Oh, like, exactly. And if it's if it's in the middle of your one of your times, especially if you're a sheep operation where you can't easily move shearing or crutching, it's yeah. it's a major headache. There could definitely yeah. be some animal welfare implications. Yeah, of yeah, for sure. 
so I want, I'm just wondering, just thinking off the cuff here, do you think that affects the value of like, if, if any of these leases within the prohibited area come up for sale, does that affect the value of the lease because of these major inconveniences that can be caused? No, it hasn't really at this stage. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're quite, they're quite good to deal with. They, they do try and try and be as flexible as they can and give us as much notice as they can when there's a major exercise. And the other point, I suppose, is it keeps keeps your average Joe Blow from wandering onto your lease um, looking around. Yes. Okay. So, um, like, like, as I was alluding to earlier, that you don't have like your grey nomads or any other kind of tourists often driving through, and if they do, it's because they're lost. Because you're in this restricted space, it's quite hard to get onto this. You know, to get onto the station, you need to sort of, if you're coming from one direction, you ask for permission. You go through like a little. Yeah, yes, right. You have checkpoint. That's, that's exactly right. So you have to get your license checked, and so yeah, it it is um it is a good excuse for us too. If there's someone coming we don't like, we just say, "Oh no, woman is busy. You can't come." So. Um. Well, also I know Jill was telling me like you've got to call down and say such and such is coming at this time. This is their car, Rego. So you have three daughters. Have you used this yet to be like, well, I don't really like that boyfriend. I'm not going <laughs> to let him in. That time may come. <laughs> It's it's a pretty handy thing. <laughs> That's right. Like, Sorry, honey. I I want him to come visit, but Wilbur said no. Like, I'm sure they'll find another way. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, when I pulled up here today, I saw this kind of like hut mound thing, and I was like, oh, it's like a big just mound of dirt. And then I was like, oh, there's stuff sticking around. And then I walked around one side, and there was like this door, and I didn't actually go in, but I was like oh, they must have a cellar. And I'm just thinking that it would be full of, well, not wine. I, I thought like, <laughs> um, you know, pi- j- like um, pickles and, you know, your um, jams and chutneys and all that kind of stuff because I was like, oh, it must stay really nice and cool in there. It's not a cellar. No, it's an air aid shelter. So every property and shearing shed or, yeah, outstation in this area had a, had a um, air aid shelter built in the 1950s simply because they didn't know where the rockets were going to go when they fired them. Oh, God. And they'd call you up and say, at 1,500 hours, you've got to go and sit in the air shelter for two hours. Well, most people got a deck chair and sat on the top oh, with a beard to see if they could see the rocket coming. So. That really reminds me of when I lived in Kansas, the people, when there was a tornado warning, like some of them would take shelter and others would just come out and be like, where is it? Like, <laughs> come at me. But so is that, it doesn't look very sturdy. Like if, if a rocket hit that though, it's not going to survive it, is it? Oh, well, it was designed for the rockets they were firing then. Probably, okay. probably not for the ones that are now. But yeah, it was, it was a, a thick, um, steel shell within probably a foot of dirt on top of that. So. Oh, okay. See, I've only seen the dirt on the outside. Yeah, I'm thinking of yeah. those, um, you can get like people make little huts with like kind of like the chicken wire mesh and they'll oh, put like the yeah, spit yeah, effects yeah. in it, like those little, I was like, oh, it doesn't look like a lot. <laughs> No, no, it's a, okay, it's a fairly steel. serious structure. So. Yeah. So what do you use it for these days? Uh, store tires and yeah, things like that in there. You know, so. it would be a good seller. I'm oh, I have saying. thought about it, but yeah, um, I um, don't drink that much wine, unfortunately. No, but I'm um, not. all your chutneys. You'd have your... to be a serious prepper to fill that full of chutney. <gasps> yes, yes. So, um, if there are any doomsday prepper preppers <laughs> <laughs> listening, uh, we have. So there are a number, I guess, in the region of these like little huts. So yeah, if there's any preppers about, that's right. Maybe there's an out. Maybe could... start making friends with the station <laughs> folk. <laughs> I wonder if you could even just like imagine if you just somehow could dig it up and like put it on Facebook Marketplace and be like, bomb shelter for yeah, sale. Yeah, that's right. Oh, goodness. Your family's been here for so long and obviously they would have seen a lot of changes in that time. What about, I mean, just, I mean, obviously you've been here your entire, have you been here your entire life? 
uh, yeah. on this on you were you born on on this station? Uh, yeah, yep. So born and raised here. Yes, yeah. but from going away to to school and um and then spending a couple of years at a at college in Queensland. Yeah. Yeah. So what have been the biggest changes that you've seen in your time? Uh, communication. Mm-hmm. Yep. So back when I sort of I suppose the first form of communication was HF radio and and we'd we'd had a party line here which is a a telephone system where you've got one central exchange and then maybe four or five different other properties or homesteads or buildings with each person's got a phone line and so you'd have a different code for each each place so one place might be two longs and one short and so you'd hear your phone ring and you'd you'd go and pick it up and talk but the trouble is other people other people could just go and pick the phone up at any time and hear what you were saying so it it led to a yeah a fair bit of amusement over the years where sometimes you'd think someone was listening and yeah you'd say oh isn't that right mrs brown <laughs> and you'd hear the phone click and they'd put the phone down again <laughs> but it, it also led to a lot of I particularly remember dad a lot of serious yelling and swearing because it was a very dodgy setup and um Trying to conduct business on that was pretty hard oh, work. Oh, that would be yeah. So what what decade are we talking for that? So that actually got like we got a phone here really early. So back back because when Woomera built the air shelter, so they could warn us when they yeah, were firing rockets. Yeah. So they had to be able to communicate with us. So that was in the fifties, late fifties. We got a party line then, and then we had that right up until the mid eighties when we got radio phones came in. And then in between that, we had the HF radio. So when did you get your own, like, personal landline number? So in the, yeah, mid-80s. Wow. Okay. That's – because I'm thinking anywhere else in Australia in the 60s and 70s, they had their own personal landline numbers, right? Yep. So they had had this, like, level of privacy that you just were not – No, no, that's right. And I I suppose we were even – there was even properties around this area that were later than that too, so they were on a HF radio for longer. And, that's, and is a H? What's the difference between a HF radio? I hear UHF a bit um, and VHF. Yeah. Um, what's what's just a HF? So HF, I suppose, is the other people call it, other way people call it is a flying doctor radio. So so if you ever needed to call the flying doctor, you called in on the HF radio. So it's HF means high frequency goes further, and so yeah, there was different channels on there and. It was pretty much like um, Facebook is now. So there'd be a there'd be one general chit chat channel that everyone would get on and have a yarn, and especially if it rained, everyone would get on there and call each other and ask you how much you had, and yeah. Wow, that is just like another. It really is another world. So um, we we used to be able to hear prawn fishermen in the Gulf talking to their wives back home, and yeah, it was pretty crazy. Some of the stuff you'd hear. That's what's like the wildest. Do you, can you remember like the wildest thing you ever heard? Oh well, I, yeah. Well, I do remember. A, yeah, one particular guy. He was, he was out of one of the bays in Darwin there, and he was trying to call his wife, who was a hundred k's away, and couldn't get her. But I remember Mum talking to him, clear as day. And you said he was in Darwin. He was. A, he was on a boat just out of Darwin on a fishing on a commercial boat. And we're like halfway between Alice Springs and Adelaide, pretty, pretty much, much right now. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, just condi- condition, and so that's what. Obviously, I did my schooling on that as well through School of the Air on the same radios. That's just – I just can't believe the lack of privacy, you know, to go straight into the 1980s. I mean, if you're, what if you're trying to organise sale cattle or what if you're having a fight with a family member or you're trying to court somebody? Trying to have an affair. Yeah. Like, oh, I know. Yeah. So, yeah. No, there was some – there was a lot of funny instances <laughs> on came, HF that radios. That came off the tongue very quickly, Cole. <laughs> 
No, no. <clears throat> I won't say any stories, but um, but yeah, it was. There's a there's probably some of the older folk, obviously, than me that um, live with it all the time. Have got a lot of funny anecdotes. Oh, imagine the rumours you could spread. Up. That's if all it, sorts that's of if scandals. you could hear that particular day. You'd, there'd yeah. probably be a thunderstorm, and you wouldn't have good reception. No one would hear you. But but yeah, and then obviously we went from that to the digital world, and and now yeah, Wi-Fi calling and. Yeah, so you've got we've got no phone service out here, but you do have uh, Wi-Fi. Yeah, we do. Yep. yep, yep. So we've got we've got well, we've got normal phone service, but then yeah, no mobile. So use Wi-Fi calling or or Facebook calling. And yeah. So it, yeah, it's it's good for the for the staff and other members of the station. Um, it wasn't that long ago that there was one phone for the whole station, and they had to come over here on a Sunday night to ring their girlfriends or whatever, and yeah. I remember that. The first place I worked on, you had to go into the laundry and you had to write down the phone number yes. and the t- date and time because they would take it out take of your wages. Your yep. Yeah, yeah. And that was, um, yeah, that wasn't that long ago, actually. Although now that I think about it, it was. So, uh, aside from being in this Woomera prohibited area, so that's obviously impacts a lot of your day-to-day, well, not your day-to-day, but it is impacts your life and your business. Um, you're also in a fair bit of mining country. So how does that, how does that all work? And what kind of impact does that have on your business and your, and also just your personal life? Yeah. So that's been an extraordinary change for, for this particular area in the last 20 years. We've had two big mines, um, spring up sort of either side of Olympic Dam, which is, it's one of the biggest mines in Australia, um, just off our bottom boundary. But what it has meant, I suppose, is we've we've certainly gone along with the mining exploration and and the mine development and tried to um, without too fine a word on it, make as much money as we can out of it. So it's certainly funded um, a lot of our adjustment over the years when things are dry. Yeah, and it's it's a very good side income. Um, like we're a long way off the road to do tourism, so yeah, it's a good way of having a having a second income in in ordinary times is is doing mine work like grading and accommodation and sort of thing. I suppose tourism probably wouldn't really even be feasible out here would it in with with the warmer the prohibited No, not really. And space and our dirt roads and like they're very ordinary roads so small amount of rain and shows over so. Yeah, so do you mind me asking how when you say like obviously it can be a, a beneficial relationship. I think when we think of mining, often they're like the big bad guys and they're, you know, doing something bad to the little farmers or whatever like that. I think that's the most common narrative that we hear or see, yeah, read, certainly. whatever in the media. Yep. Um, I know that's not been your experience, but you said before, like, you know, you know, you can it can be beneficial and you can make you can make money out of it. So how do you make money out of the mines? Because you're not actually mining yourself. No, no, uh, no. It's 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 a huge scale, uh, multi billion dollar operation. But yeah, we we um we make money by accommodation on our properties when there's exploration or or development going on grading roads um supplying water um just yeah just general support services to the to the mining and exploration and i suppose like um you certainly do need to hold them accountable there's plenty of times that um they could do things that that aren't, aren't what you'd want them to do so Especially wrecking roads and that sort of thing. So, so we've learnt we've learnt well and truly now that um, to be on the front foot and and say what we what we expect at the start and to hold them accountable. I suppose the other thing is we were talking about today. 
you can't actually um, like I, I, how does it work? You know, you have a pastoral lease. I suppose that's what we'll talk about now. Um, and they've got a, a mining lease or an exploration license, yeah, well, exploration yep. lease or license or whatever, first up and whatnot. But like, you can't actually, you've got no control over this. Like, if they're going to come in and mine, like, you can't say no, you can't mine here. No, you've got you've got no control. Mining mining trumps pastoralism. So we basically just, for want of a better word, renting renting the land to be able to run our livestock on, even though like we own a lease, but it's it's only on the top of the land. So, and obviously, mining's for the state. So that'll always, always take precedence. So it's something that most pastoralists have, are well accustomed to is is expiration. Every pastoral lease would have expiration on it of some description. How does pastoralism work in South Australia? I know there's a lot of similarities between the different states and territories. But they also are different, and we actually haven't covered this in any of our episodes so far. So as we just said, it is a lease. I would say I don't know in, in South Australia. I know. Certainly in the te- – well, in different parts of the country, you can get freehold bits of land, which is like when you kind of own it outright and like you own it. Like kind of like if you own a house in town, like that's freehold yep. land, that's yours. Yep. But this is a lease. So, so how does no, that work? No, this is a crown lease and, yeah, you can't you can't get it freeholded, so you can't get your homestead freeholded off of it. It's all, it's all attached to your crown lease. They're a 42-year lease. They get inspected – well, they get inspected – Semi regularly by pastoral inspectors, but then there's a there's an assessment process done every fourteen years, and that's when um, yeah, if there's been no serious breaches, you will get your lease your lease renewed again. Okay, so is it so? Um, do you call that a perpetual lease? Like it just keeps rolling over unless there's been some kind of big breach? Uh, yeah, right yeah. Well, it's not actually a perpetual lease, but it's yeah, your lease will get rolled over unless yeah unless there's a serious issue. Okay. And so has it always been – I know we've just had some really big changes in WA, so maybe around 2015 or something, a lot of – where they, were the, they used to have like these 99-year leases and now they're of all different lengths and it's kind of yeah. all been going through a lot of changes. Was it always 42 years over here? Or it's a very odd number. Yeah, it is. I think it's a generational figure that they've that they've used. Um, but there's, there's certainly some – some proposed changes on the board at the moment um, that um, there's been a rewriting of the pastoral bill, so um, which is yeah going going before parliament um, possibly this year. So there could be some changes um, to length to the length of of uh, leases going forward. So we often um, see in the media. You know, like um, Gina Reinhart or Twiggy or somebody has bought these big properties and they're like millions of dollars, or they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars with their portfolio. But it's not the same as like buying a house. Again, as we just said, it's a lease, so you're buying a lease, but then also you have to pay rent. So how does that work? Say you buy a station for twenty million dollars, yep. so you just drop twenty million dollars, yep. but then you also and probably whatever taxes and stamp duty or whatever else happens, but then you're still paying rent each year on top of that. How does that all? There work? you are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because you, yeah, you, you. I suppose you're buying the you're buying the lease um, in order to conduct a business on it, and then you're you're paying rent um, to to um, to the government for the use of that land. So, how do they calculate rent in South Australia? Uh, it's it's based on your unimproved value of your of your property, and then. And then that's that's also got other factors taken into it um, in terms of how isolated you are. So a property north of Udadatta, um 
per square kilometre would, um, because it's a lot higher cost of production up there with freight, they take that into account, say, a property that was just near Port Augusta. Interesting. I'm going to – I want to do so, a – So that's actually done by the Valuer General and not actually yes. anything to do with the with the administrators of the of the pastoral lands. Yes, so. and I think that's the same in um, Western Australia. It's a Valuer General that does that. And there's obviously there's ongoing um, we've got ongoing issues with that and a lot of people because there's been some horrific rises in rent. Yeah. Um, I think it's like every three years and sometimes like their rent they increase. But anyway, it's um it's not great. Yeah, I mean we've we've certainly heard about that and and our our rent differs inside and outside of the dog fence. So per square kilometre, you'll always be paying well not always but most of the time you'll be paying more inside because you've got the ability to run sheep and cattle. Yeah, okay. So you can diversify your income. And so I, I yeah, I do want to do a couple of episodes on this, hopefully on our other series, the Cattle Station Classroom, to really break down and explain how it all works in different states. But um, you said it's for the I, – I love that they take into account how isolated you are and or, you know, and any other associated costs of doing business in that area. You said the value of the unimproved – Yeah, um, so it's the unimproved unimproved – value of your lease so it's essentially the country the country the, the type of country that you've got so it it's not taking into account um if you've built yeah a hundred hundred sets of yards that's not what um the valuation's on interesting again i'm speaking kind of out of school because i need to do some fact checking but my understanding from having conversations of people within the department is that in wa it's quite different it's they base it on oh, – I hope I'm not getting this wrong here because otherwise I'll just get slaughtered. But uh, my understanding is that it's um, as if your property was fully developed and running at capacity and that's what they're calculating yeah, it off, okay. which yep. um, I'm definitely going to check that before yeah. I publish this episode. But that's what the people from the Department of Plans, Landing, Lands Planning and Heritage have told me, and which, I mean, there's pretty much nobody's got a fully developed property. So No, I'm wondering what the definition of that would be. So. Yeah, yeah, so that – yeah, anyway, I will. Um, we might do a follow-up episode on that, Cole. G'day, everyone. This is your voiceover man filling in for Steph again because at the moment she's lost her voice. Steph wanted me to let you know that we'll be doing an episode specifically on how pastoral rent works in different states and territories as they're all different and there's been some very recent changes in WA. So if anyone listening thinks she's butchered it, she apologises and was just recounting past conversations with people. But we'll come back to this and clear it up soon. So how does that uh, affect your business and how you do things out here? I mean, so if you were to lose your lease or if somebody were to lose their lease, do they just get forced to sell the lease? Like let's say you buy a station for $20 million, you pay however much in rent per year, then after 14 years they're like, nah, you haven't done a very good job with the place we're not going to let you renew, but like, well, is that twenty million a sunk cost, or do they get uh, to sell that on to someone else? You'd get to sell it on, but that that hasn't happened in in my memory. Okay. Yep. So, but places will get compulsory acquired for uh, for different reasons. So, so national parks or defence, um, um, Aboriginal lands. So, so yeah, that so leases do get taken off people, um, and. Often the compensation is a, is a big issue um, to the to the lessee that's had to lose some or all of their place. That sounds very much like the castle, like the storyline of the castle, 
we're going to take it off you and you just got to accept what we're going to give you. Yeah, yep. It's, Which, a, it's a bit like that. There's a, and and if it, particularly in the in defence, there's been a few horror stories there. So, um, in terms of how long payments been, yeah. Oh gosh. Um, and I guess that's the other. Yeah. Anyway, that that's a whole other can of worms. Speaking of that, though, I'm just wondering. Coming back to the warmer, was it restricted area or uh, a prohibited wa- warmer prohibited area? Prohibited WPA. area. Yep. So how? If there's times where they're telling you to evacuate or other people to evacuate, and uh, what what dragon is like the longest people have had to evacuate for? Oh, generally, like you can always get back, um, maybe at night, like during the night oh, or something. Okay. So, so, or or their thing might be a night thing, so you're there, you're allowed there during the day. But in, in our case, like it's two hours to get off the place sometimes, or to get out of the warmer period area. So if you got to drive two hours out to get off out of the area and then drive two hours back and then next day do the same thing. If you've got to do that for a week, it gets it gets um, pretty monotonous. Yeah, and you've got fuel, you've got accommodation, you've got staff who may be full-time and that I don't, you can't really say, oh, well, we're going to use up some of your annual leave. You better pop down to Port yeah, Augusta for right. a week. I'm forcing you to take holidays. How does that all work with obviously there's a lot of losses you would incur? Yeah, so, that, so there is a bit of a, a reimbursement model but um yeah once again we've had some some serious issues with that if you actually own your place um your staff will get reimbursed but if you're an owner operator it's um too bad so sad really maybe you need to make maybe you should sell the place to me and i'll employ you yeah (laughs) i'll employ you but also can i please um not have to do any of the hard stuff Uh, (laughs) I'm like, you just let me run the place with somebody else's bank account yeah, and we'll right. be fine. We use mine, we'll probably last about a week. Anyway, another thing that I find quite interesting about your property out here, I mean, there's just so many, it's like a it's like a little melting pot or like a little hotspot of all these. You've got the mining, you've got the Woomera um, prohibited area, you've got um, the, and then the, the, this other thing that I find absolutely fascinating is the dog fence as well. Like you've got all these cool things going on here. So what is, I think we've all heard of the movie Rabbit Proof Fence yep. and I don't even know where that fence, well, actually. Uh, Western Australia. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm from Western Australia, So guys. you failed <laughs> geography in year nine. So. Oh, my God. No, they did not teach us teach <laughs> us about this at school. Anyway, dog fence. Let's move away from my ineptness um, or ineptitude or whatever and talk about the dog fence. So, yeah, the, yeah, the dog fence is pretty unique. It goes from the Great Australian Bight all the way almost to Brisbane. I think the Great Wall of China is the only longer man-made thing in the world. So, yeah, and without it, there would be no there would be no sheep industry in South Australia, in the pastoral country. So the idea of the fence is to stop wild dogs getting into anything, I guess, below the fence. So Yes, inside, yep. Yeah, inside right. the fence. I know I found it quite fa- fascinating today hearing you guys talk about like inside and outside. It's almost like like you're in America talking about Mexico, like, you know, like Pretty below much. the border, yeah, like the it wall. is like a border. Yep. Yeah, so what I'm wondering though is, so it goes through South Australia, up through Queensland, kind of Brisbane. So in theory, like- all of New South Wales is below the fence. Pretty much, yes. But surely they have – do they Do they not – Yeah, that mean so they, they, don't have, they have a big wild dog problem in their national parks. And so do you get near like a north-south fence running now no, to kind of no, on, they, along your boundary? They have a bit of ex- some exclusion fencing over there to try and stop stop their wild dog issue. But, um, um, but yeah, that's, that's a bit different, I suppose. So once you get 
out of out of the say the Great Divide and out into more open areas, the dogs get controlled over there. Um, so in South Australia, yeah, it's it pretty much runs across the middle of the state. Okay, so if you're say like on the South Australia New South Wales border though, and not like so you're in you're in the fence. So is that below what you the fence? It? Below, yep. yep, you're below or you're out outside or inside inside inside. inside yep, yep, we're calling it the inside. But do you, do they still get issues with dogs just kind of coming across the border? Though? Oh, not really, because by then they've been controlled. So, so there's areas in South Australia that dogs are inside as well. Um, um, yeah, conservation areas, some rough rough countries, some some areas that aren't really managed for livestock that the dogs have established in. And so you have two of your stations of the three stations that you own or own the lease on. Have uh, two of them are neighbouring, and the fence runs right through that. Through the is it through the boundary, or is it through a bit of each station, or as as the boundary, as the yep. boundary. So your southern or the the southern of the two, the Miller the Millers uh, Panati's our our bottom. Oh no, sorry, like a, the southern of the the oh the Millers, fence. Millers Creek, Millers here. Creek. Yes. Yeah, so we've got Millers Creek, and then we're north of the fence right now on Billa Cleaner. Does that mean so? Sheep, the the dogs can't get onto Millers Creek in theory with the fences that's, maintained. That's the idea. Yep. Does that mean because you're kind of where the fence is that you get a lot of dogs just kind of like I can just imagine it's I guess it's like any kind of fence and something's trying to get through that you would just get a whole bunch kind of like bank, banked up and kind of smush, not smushed up against the fence. Yeah, but, you can. And um and dogs like accumulated, I guess that's is the right. word I'm looking for. Yep. Do they and accumulate on Billa Kalina? Especially like the the fence runs north south. And then, and does a right angle bend and then runs east west where it heads towards, towards Maree. So there's essentially a, a right angle corner down there that, um, that, yeah, we certainly do get a lot of dog pressure there, uh, from the outside. Um, and dogs are, are territorial animals. So they'll kick, they'll kick the younger dogs out and, and they're the ones that you'll see traveling a lot. So yeah, we have to, we have to manage them accordingly with, with some dog control techniques. Yeah, so obviously it's it's very important to keep them out of the sheep areas because they, I mean, sometimes you know I suppose they kill because they need to eat and they're hungry, but also we, there is obviously a lot of instances of, well, not just dogs. I think some are like is it the eagles or the hawks, or whatever they are, they just kind of kill for fun. Like they, oh, just- probably not so much eagles. They they're generally doing it. No, doing it too. But but certainly dogs can can do it. Um, yeah, can do it for fun. Fun, yeah. Yep. Um. But obviously, so yeah, you've got, you can get a higher concentration of dogs on your lease on like on this side of the fence. So do you see an impact on your cattle with? Can do. Yes. Yep. Yep. We can. Dog numbers generally in this country are um, rise and fall with rabbit numbers. So yeah, when rabbit numbers are high and, and dogs get a chance to breed up, yeah, we can see very thick dogs um, against the fence. And what is the best, most humane method of dog control in your uh, from your experience, the, I mean, the best best way is um, is baiting. Um, it's the most effective. So yeah, that's really the only the only uh, major control method we've got. Shoot, shooting sounds good, but it's certainly not effective. Um, you get you just get the ones you see, obviously, but um, all the ones that are over the sand hill you don't see. Yeah, yep. and obviously, um, you know, the idea of this podcast is for for hopefully a lot of our listeners are people who are not in this industry and not. You know, this isn't their everyday life, so it can sound quite harsh to be baiting dogs or shooting dogs and, 
you know, well, they're just, why should we, you know, they're just eating the sheep because they're hungry. It's just circle of life, you know, Lion King, whatever. What would you say to anybody that's kind of not sure where they, yeah, so, how they feel about it? So, I, like, the dingoes are, and and it's not just the dingo, like, it's, there's, the wild dogs um, include dingoes and domestic dogs that have hybridised with dingoes and domestic dogs that people haven't treated well and let go and, and so there's all forms in between. Um, and, yeah, certainly if you've got an area that you're not running stock in and um, don't need to make a make a living off of off of that area, then, yeah, then certainly a, a dingo could have a place, certainly not a wild dog because they're basically a feral animal. But, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a balancing act. I don't think any pastoralist outside the fence in the cattle country would would say that they never want to see another dingo on their property. But yeah, certainly if you're if you're running sheep it's I know no, it's it's just yeah, it's disastrous basically what happens and the effects. And it's not just it's not just if, if a dingo just or a wild dog killed one animal a week and, and lived on that, you could probably live with that. But it's um yeah, it's just the the ongoing flow on effects of of stock being harassed, pushing them through fences Getting them off of water, lambs mismothering. There's a lot of flow-on effects. Absolutely, and then as we said before as well, like you, you can see sheep walking around that have clearly been injured or attacked by dogs. Not you know they've whether it's just a graze, a bite, or a big you know gaping hole with you know there's all different a, very, a whole different variation yeah, of, inf- of injuries and that's right infections impacts are big, big and- issues. So so yeah, it's this the two can't can't basically mix. Um, Sheep and wild dogs. Now we've talked about a lot of. Um, I just I was like, oh, we've talked about a lot of serious stuff. So we should probably get some fun stuff before we wrap up. You are a big uh, fan of Bronco branding, and that is also something that is really, uh, I suppose, like I well, my understanding is there's a fair few in Queensland, but kind of South Australia, Central Australia is kind of gone on down around here. Haven't really seen it further north of that. Certainly, and it's not really it's not in Western Australia at all. So, what is Bronco branding, and why do you like it? Oh well, Bronco branding was over all of the pastoral country in Australia one time. Um, every state in the sort of at bigger properties had Bronco used Bronco branding to brand calves. Um, but then, yeah, probably I think it was the early nineties. Um, there's a few guys decided it would be a good idea to turn what was pretty hard work into a sport. And yeah, it's got quite a following now through through the more remote areas of Queensland, South Australia, and the bottom end of the territory. So, how does it work? Uh, I know that's probably not the easiest question because this is a audio format, not visual, so people no, can't well, I'll, see. I'll try and be try and paint, paint a, a bit of a with picture your, with your words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a usually a square yard with with a couple of hundred cattle in there, um, like small cattle. So so. Um, Wieners, which are like, um, say, teenage-type size cattle, for those who aren't sure. Um, and then you have a panel or a, or a ramp, it's called. So it's basically three posts with some rails and a gap in the middle. And then you have a, a person on a horse that goes out there and catches a calf, um, tows it up, and the rope's attached to the horse. So the horse has to tow the calf up to to the panel and then... There's a couple of people on the ground that have a rope each, put it around their legs, and then the calf's lowered onto the ground, rope taken off its neck, 
The person on the horse tries to catch another one, while a third person puts a paint brand on. So the paint brands obviously just just wash off paint, and it's all done with the time. Um, sounds easy, but yeah, it's not. No, no, it's not. Um, I actually had a go last year, and I don't know. Were you at the Andalia? Yeah, I yeah, was, yeah, yeah. So you would have seen my. Fabulous. I mean, I've done some branding, like some roping in America. You do not throw – if you're thinking of when they're roping, like in the movies and stuff, there is no swinging your rope above your head or anything, which is exactly what I did because that's all <laughs> I knew how. And it's also um, you go off the other side of the horse and it was very confusing. But anyway, you've got you've to give things a go. And I suppose that's what is in my mind, in my memory, the most from that day is that – it's a competitive sport, but and I'd never had a go. Somebody lent me a horse. They lent me their rope. They lent me their gear. They helped me as I rode in there. They were kind of talking me through it the whole way through, even though it was I was. It wasn't a practice day. I was there to compete. Well, let's be However, honest. I wasn't a real threat. Steph, but- if you'd have sta- if you'd have caught two cows, we would have stopped helping you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you'd have looked like beating anyone, it would have been like, oh, there's the end of the advice. So. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, definitely was not a, a, a threat. Definitely was never. But no, happen. it is. It's a good inclusive sport because you can you can rock up there and and have no horse, no gear, and um and have a go. Yeah, that's the the great thing. And so what, you know, you, so from here, Andulia would be a good, at oh, least nine or ten hours, yeah, wouldn't ten, it be? Yeah, ten hours, yeah. Yeah, in a, in a horse truck. And then you went to Aileron, which is even further. But, oh, you just came up to, to help. You didn't bring a, did you borrow a horse for Aileron? I borrowed a horse for Aileron. But yeah, yeah we, driving I think I've been to most Bronco Burnings in Australia now. Um, it's a bit of an addiction. Um Went Bronco beatings on our honeymoon. That's how. Oh my god! Really? That's how bad I am. So. Oh no! Where did you take? Uh, Longreach, I think. Oh, your poor wife! Oh my oh, goodness! She was pregnant afterwards, so it wasn't oh, that god. bad. <laughs> okay, so um, note to self: Jill needs a real honeymoon. Twenty <laughs> something years later, um, especially because like Jill wasn't competing in the Bronco branding. No, 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 she wasn't. No. Yeah, so that was a honeymoon for you, not for her. Come on, Cole. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So what what else do you like to do for fun out here? I suppose uh, as we've, folk, uh, you know, kind of touched on in this episode, there's a lot going on out here. Aside from managing a pastoral lease, you know, so you're responsible for a landscape, you've got sheep and cattle, you've got staff. You've got this warmer, a prohibited area that just adds another layer on. Then you've got the layer of dealing with mining companies and you've got your companies and you've got probably got random people in offices that are calling. And then you've got your actual people driving around. You've got the dog fence. You've got, um, you're, you're on the pastoral board. You're very involved in the community. You're on a lot of things. Like there's a lot going on. So yeah, how do you let off some steam and have fun? Oh, uh, so yeah, I suppose you, it's your Bronco Bannings, Bush Jim Carners. There's a, there's a good strong bush chimkana he's seen in this area, so yeah, still ride and compete and um and yeah, and then Jill and I try and have a annual holiday if we can somewhere either in Australia or overseas every year just to get away. I've noticed that the events in this area aren't particularly big, but they are very well attended. You know, if we're talking relative to the actual people in the area, yep. and there is so much energy, and like it's not like oh, we all just got together, and you know, it is like there is energy, there is people having a good time. But I've I've come to realize in the last couple of days that it really 
involves and the people come from all over but you really have to turn up to these things because if you don't you're like oh well, we won't just go to this one and that's just us and our three kids that's just five people they won't miss yeah. us yeah. but at these events like five people will be noticed if they're your five people short yeah that's 100 percent right we're um we got sparsely populated areas out here and and like stations don't have 20 staff on them so so yeah you've got to travel a long way and um and and make an effort to keep these things going and and um all of us that have had little kids that enjoyed enjoyed it um, with them competing and now sort of yeah helping helping the next generation with their little kids and um, yeah we're pretty passionate about it it's um, it'd be a pretty dull life just to sit here and, and work all the time and and not um, and not go and enjoy these shows yeah oh well I don't know I'm pretty sure there's some people that do that. Now, this next question kind of ties into what we just spoke before. So my question is, how do you look after yourself? You did allude to, you know, the fact that you do get away, you go to some events, you try and get off the property, you go on holidays. But I suppose um, for this question, let's focus on more of like a day-to-day or week-to-week. Like, what are you doing in your life to look after yourself? Oh, well, I didn't have to do anything till I got to about 45 and then... Yeah, suddenly you started to gain weight and that sort of thing. <laughs> so I was bulletproof till then. But yeah, I suppose I try and watch what I I drink during the week and try not to drink too much at all during the week at home. And and yeah, try and try and eat fairly healthily. I suppose that goes out the window when you go somewhere. And while we're I'm still still fairly young and active, so obviously um, you you do exercise a fair bit on the job. And I think that's obviously the physical side of it, and that's the easiest part in some ways. But the mental side of it, yeah, you certainly do need to to, to be able to talk to people, have mentors in the community, older guys or, or guys that that um, are in similar situations, and and yeah, and and I suppose talk to them about about some of your concerns and ask them how they're going, and then hopefully they'll ask you, and yeah, you can look out for each other. So just to clarify, because I think that's um, maybe something people wouldn't assume of you, is that you are, I don't know what generation you are, a lot. You've been, your family's been here almost 100 years. You've been here your whole life. You've been involved in the parcel industry. You're very well respected, very, um, what's that word? Uh, You're painting a fairly rosy picture there. I know. Oh, don't worry. I'll paint a bad one (laughs) when I do my intro. But, you know, like, you know, just to hear you say that you've got mentors and I, when you said that, what kind of popped into my mind, even though I'm a big uh, proponent of mentors, is that I was like, oh, he's got mentors. Like, oh, I just thought he would have kind of – why would he need a mentor? He's been doing this his whole life. He's he's well accomplished. He's, you know, if he needs a mentor, God, then we all, then we all need one. But I think that is the beauty in what you just said, though, is that it's like no matter who you are, what you've done, how long you've been around – there's still a need and a space for mentors. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And probably the guys that that I talk to don't. They certainly wouldn't realise that I regard them as that. Um, but yeah, just the, just the chance to be able to talk and I suppose confirm um, in your own subconscious what you're doing is is um, you seem to be on the right track. Um, yeah, it's it's hard sometimes if you're a, a family operation, like you haven't got the company support behind you or the um, that you can access, so you've got to work it out yourself a lot of the time. Brilliant. So for everyone listening, doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing, how old you are, how accomplished you are, you still need a mentor. There's right. definitely space in there. And um, one last question before I let you go, because I know you've got a very early morning tomorrow. So 
looking back at your story so far, as you said, you're still relatively young. Um, like I just threw in relatively. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry. I think I am, but yeah, uh, no. Well, looking back at your story so far and, and all your experiences, what is the major takeaway lesson if you had to pick just one? Um, I suppose it's to, yeah, to hang in there. Um, and that, that probably applies to most things in life. Like you gotta, you gotta work at it. And, and Jill will certainly say that I probably don't work at being the, um, the model husband as hard as I should, but you sort of learn, you learn in, in this area and in this sort of low rainfall, isolated sort of country that, yeah, you've just got to, um, that things will come good and, um, there'll always be a, There'll always be a rain, rain cloud on the horizon one day when you even in even in the worst drought. So, and and that's probably a metaphor for a lot of things. It's um, yeah, if you've got health issues or whatever, well, yeah, generally things will things will come good. And and I'm I'm a very much a glass half full person, which um, drives drives Jewel mad sometimes. But but yeah, that probably is, is what keeps me going is just to be positive as much as you can. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.